All right, we are continuing our series, I Believe, where we're looking at the ancient summary of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible on you, there's some in the pews, and if you need a Bible, please pick one up on, at the info table on your way out. We would love to get that into your hands, and that's our gift to you. But this is the third paragraph of the Apostles' Creed. So the first paragraph deals with God the Father as creator. The second paragraph deals with God the Son, our Redeemer. And the third paragraph deals with the Holy Spirit, our Renewer. So and the way he kind of breaks it down is he renews kind of broken and sinful people like us in and through the Son, Jesus. And so what we'll see here over the next few weeks as this unfolds, we'll see the renewed community, which is the church. We'll see, talk about forgiveness, which is a renewed relationship. Then we have renewed existence, which talk about the resurrection and renewed fulfillment in everlasting life. But today we're just going to start with the first line of that paragraph, which is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, I know for many of us, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, he's oftentimes seen as like the socially awkward uncle that we have in the family, right? Like you have to invite him to the family picnic but you're doing your best to not talk to him or talk about him, right? So every time he comes up to you and talks to you, you always have like an excuse, you got to run to the bathroom or the kids are, you know, doing something, you need to intervene, something like that, right? That's how we typically think about the Holy Spirit. It's like, hey, he, we know he's part of the triune God. We know he, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is equal. They're co-equal, but we'd rather just not talk about him if we can help it. And I hope that this mentality, we can move away from this mentality today, and as we look at Acts chapter 2, I think we're going to see that. We're kind of jump between Acts chapter 2 and the Gospel of John. But I want to just start with let you know a little bit about myself. When I, when I started really following Jesus, it was in my teenage years. And I was on a mission trip to Panama, and I was with more charismatic Christians who are just more open to the Holy Spirit. They talk about him much more than I was used to. And they believe in things like supernatural gifts, like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy and so forth. And those were the kind of the early stages of my life with Jesus. They were powerful. They were fascinating, exciting. But also, they were very emotionally driven. So much to the point that I believe that the Holy Spirit was only working in your life when you were emotional about Jesus. Only if there were tears, only if you were feeling it that day. And with that, there also became this implicit belief that um, to be led by the Holy Spirit meant that you checked your brain at the door. And when I went to Bible college, I kind of did the, I did the reverse. I kind of flipped I went to Bible college, I saw kind of what Jesus talks about. Like, Jesus says, like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I saw how God, I thought about how God created the mind and how beautiful it is to kind of study his word. And, but with that kind of came this implicit belief <clears throat> that when you follow Jesus, you check all that Holy Spirit stuff at the door. Right, so one's like leave your mind at the door. The other one's kind of like leave the Holy Spirit stuff, all that emotional stuff at the door. And all I was kind of told in my Bible college years was that the Holy Spirit was really just there to kind of help us read the Bible. That's really kind of all he does. He helps us read the Bible. helps it to make sense to us. And while that's true, what it started to do is make me feel really awkward about the Holy Spirit. And I wasn't sure how to see his work, right? It, was it an emotional, like, mindlessness that I learned in, like, the, 
early parts of my Christian life? Or was it illumination, kind of like helping me understand the Scripture or a combination of both? And I wasn't really sure. And I imagine many of us are also confused about the Holy Spirit. And we probably do the flip-flop thing as well. And But we'll see today that the Holy Spirit is actually a gift. And we're left to wonder, though, like, who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit actually do? Why do we even need the Holy Spirit in the first place? And so what I want to talk about today is that the Holy Spirit is given to us by the Father for the purpose of revealing our spiritual blindness and bringing glory to the Son, Jesus. So we're just going to answer those questions. Who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, and why we need the Holy Spirit. So look at first who the Holy Spirit is. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, this is uh, all the disciples, were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. And this is, like, a lot of times we think this is where the Holy Spirit shows up, right? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit finally shows up. He's been hanging out in heaven, and now he's actually down on earth hanging out with everybody now. But it's actually not true. So when we look at the rest of Scripture, I have some... uh, some evidence of the Holy Spirit in the rest of Scripture. He's from very early stages of the early pages of the Bible. Actually, the first pages of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's involved. So, if you look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, one, he it says that he inspired the prophets. That's in Isaiah. He's also said to equip and enable God's servants as judges and kings. Um, he brings forth godliness in individuals and in the community. Right? Sometimes it's individuals. Sometimes it's a whole community. Of people. Those are some verses there. But he's also involved in creation. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, the first verses of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's there. And what is he doing at creation? He's hovering. It's really interesting. Look, at creation, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see God the Father in verse 1 And John chapter 1 says God the Son was also involved in creation. So here the Holy Spirit is also involved, hovering over the the face of the waters. But we also see, even before Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's involvement. He's hovering over the face of Mary's womb. Look at Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel says to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So not only is the Holy Spirit involved with the Father and Son in creation, he's also involved with the Father and Son in the incarnation. So fast forward to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we see the resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But before he goes, he says something really interesting. Look at verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. But you will receive, Jesus says, power when what? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, his disciples or his students, Jesus' students, are waiting for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So what are they doing? They're all together waiting. So they're at the day of Pentecost. His disciples, the students, are waiting to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends on them. And what they do, they start to speak in tongues. Now, in 1 Corinthians, when the Bible uses the word tongues, it's talking about non-human language. But here, when it's actually talking about human languages. So verses 5 through 6 of Acts chapter 2, you see the apostles, they, what they do is they go out and start praising God. And because there's so many Jews all, through, from, all throughout the Roman Empire in Jerusalem at, t- at the time to celebrate Pentecost, those overhearing the disciples' praise, to hearing them praise God, ask this question, verse 7. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? So what they're saying is, we actually hear human languages here. Like I said, 1 Corinthians is non-human. Here, it's human. So what we might not want to miss is this. Pentecost took place 50 days after the Passover. And it was a celebration of the time in Exodus where the newly freed Israelites came to Mount Sinai. And what does Moses do? He goes up to the mountain and he comes down and he brings God's law to Israel. And so here's what Acts is doing. In his ascension, Jesus is going up. And what comes down is not Jesus with stone tablets or parchment but rather what comes down is the Holy Spirit who writes God's law on our hearts, the hearts of his people. It's a better gift than the law. Pentecost, what Pentecost does, it complements Jesus' ascension. The gift of the Holy Spirit is a direct result of Jesus' ascension in heaven. The Holy Spirit is sent down after Jesus goes up. So then what, like the value of the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do for us? Well, John 14 through 17, Jesus is giving like his farewell speech to his disciples. And when you're about to die, you're talking about all kinds of things, right? Like this isn't the time to talk about the weather or that the Phillies really let you down earlier in the week or anything like that, right? We don't talk about that. When you're dying, you're talking about the really important stuff. And what Jesus interestingly talks a lot about is who? The Holy Spirit. So in John 14, 15 through 17, we'll put this on the screen if you don't want to flip there. He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's talking to his disciples here. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 16 then, right? So this is a whole passage. He jumps back. He keeps talking about the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says in John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, which always like boggles my mind that Jesus like, I'll come back to this in a minute, but that he says like, 
that it's to your advantage I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jump down to verse 12. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And listen to this. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father that has two different effects, Jesus says. One, it reveals spiritual blindness. The Holy Spirit reveals spiritual blindness blindness of the world. And he beautifies Jesus in our hearts. Where do we see that? Well, we see the spiritual blindness earlier in that passage where he talks about he's going to come in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin. In chapter 14, he says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So there's spiritual blindness that the world experiences, because of our sin, because we're all born into sin, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 4.4 actually says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded us. Not this verse yet. 4.4 says that the Holy Spirit has, sorry, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What happened, what's happening is we're all, because of our sin, we're blinded from seeing who Jesus is unless he's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. So without the Holy Spirit, listen to me, look at me. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot, I cannot, we cannot turn to Jesus. We cannot see Jesus for all he is. We are spiritually blind. And so the, uh, this is in my notes, but this is also somewhat helpful in terms of evangelism. That when you're telling somebody about Jesus, you're putting Jesus before them, but the Holy Spirit needs to work. So no matter how good or bad your pitch for Jesus is, the Holy Spirit's doing the work. So trust him in those moments. Don't be afraid because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus when they reject him. And when don't take too much glory when they receive Jesus because it wasn't your work anyway. It was the Holy Spirit doing the work. All right? So take the pressure off yourselves. But, second, but 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to do the work for us to turn to Jesus. He's got to change our hearts. And like I said, I'm, I'm always struck by John 16, 7, where Jesus says this to his disciples' advantage that he goes. Why? So he can send the Holy Spirit. And many Christians, myself included, have said things like, look, I would have loved to see Jesus. I would love to see him do his miracles. I would love to see him in his resurrection. I would love to see him resurrect Lazarus. How cool would that be to be there? And if I was there, then I would get more of this right. 
But I think the greatest evidence to where that's wrong is the disciples themselves. The apostles themselves, before they received the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, they're with Jesus, and they're always getting things wrong. They saw Lazarus get resurrected, and they're fighting. They hear Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, and then they say a bunch of stupid stuff. So Jesus says, I won't be with you in person anymore, but that's better. You'll have the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. Now, what I don't think this means is that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, taught the disciples about atoms or microbes or something like that, right? That's not what he's saying. What's this truth? Where do we find it? In the New Testament. The apostles' writings. The Holy Spirit leads them. And so even in 2 Peter 1.21, Peter talks about the Scripture was written by men led by the Holy Spirit. But without the Holy Spirit, you and I are blind to the truth of Scripture. Our natural condition as sinful people makes us spiritually blind. It makes the world spiritually blind. And people who study human behavior even say stuff like this that actually it's been proven that we as humans are very gifted at seeing our bad actions as good. So social scientists call that being in denial. Christians call that self-deception or spiritual blindness. And it's a good reminder, and Paul Tripp, a Christian psychologist, says something like this. He says, no one deceives you more than you deceive you. So an example from television, and I do not promote this show. Please don't go tell your friends that Pastor Evan said we should watch this show together. But the show Peaky Blinders from Netflix. Thomas Shelby in there, he runs basically like a mob. He kills, terrorizes, and steals from others. But what he sees it as, as taking care of his family. You see that? He's convinced that his bad actions are actually good. Yeah, I kill people, but I get to buy my Aunt Polly this really beautiful house. See, we deceive ourselves in this thinking that our bad actions are good. We're good at justifying ourselves. We're good at self-deception. And so oftentimes what that looks like is arrogance we think is confidence. We see laziness as rest. Or we see Sabbath rest as laziness. Right? You can go the other way too. See good things as bad. Or we might see fear as wisdom. Or stinginess as stewardship. Oh, well, you know, I can't give my money back. You know, God, until God tells me to be generous, I, I got to steward my money well, you know? I mean, I won't be able to take that third vacation if I give my money to the church. I mean, what, you know, stinginess as stewardship. Or this is the big one for those of us who have been Christians for a while. Pride as righteousness. Well, I'm, you know how long I've been a Christian? I mean, y'all are reading the ESV. I'm KJV all the way. And in fact, I go Greek sometimes. Right? That's what the Pharisees do to Jesus. It's pride, and they go, but it's actually, we think it's righteousness. And Jesus says, you're whitewashed tombs. I had a New Testament scholar friend 
who would often go to church and bring a small whiteboard. (laughs) And please don't do this to me. But what he would do is when the preacher would preach, he'd be taking notes on his whiteboard. Like, oh, yeah, good. He's taking notes, right? Good. No, he was taking notes on everything he thought the preacher got wrong. Now, he later repented of that. That's why he told me the story. But that's self-deception. That's spiritual blindness. It made my friends see a critical spirit as diligence, as zeal for God's word. So without the Holy Spirit, you and I have spiritual blinders on. So just my quick question to you is, where do you have your spiritual blinders on? This is my question to you. Where? It's pride as righteousness? Stinginess, you think, is stewardship? You think if you take a day off and rest, like Jesus says it's a good idea to do, you think that's being lazy? What is it? But with the Holy Spirit, we're freed from self-deception. Our eyes are open to Jesus. So Jesus says in John 16, 14, he says, what the Holy Spirit will do, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. That's the Holy Spirit's job, is to glorify Jesus. Glorify glory in the Bible has a sense of importance and brilliance. Importance, right? You might think of like glorify, you know, to, to exalt or, you know, see someone as has a high status, but also has the sense of brilliance. What I mean by that is a sense of attractiveness and beauty. See, the ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't to make us emotional, although sometimes he does do that. But his ministry is really to make Jesus beautiful. When you believe in Jesus, everything he's done for you, when you receive him into your life, the Bible says at that point you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's job is then to make Jesus more and more beautiful to you. But this beauty goes beyond like instant infatuation. It's this deep, constant, growing love for your Savior who came, lived, died, and rose again for you. Some of you know the story about how I met my wife Amanda and how we started dating. And it really came, for those who don't, let me just tell you, it came in two stages. The first stage, we were friends in high school. Right, I thought she was really cool. I thought she was really funny. I liked spending time with her. And all of you, right, we're in the future. You know how this works out, right? You all of a sudden, your friend is like, "Oh, I was walking through the halls. I'm like, huh. Amanda Green is really pretty. I wonder why I didn't notice that." That's stage one. That's the kind of instant infatuation, the physical beauty. Stage two was this. I tried to set her up with one of my friends. Right? I, lo- I thought she was awesome. I thought she was pretty. But I was like, I'm going to set her up with one of my friends. And so I go to my friend. I'm like, look, dude, Amanda's pretty. She's smart. She's funny. She loves Jesus, which to me is like the best thing. And he says, look, he, and he's just not convinced, like, you know, because God didn't have it for him. He says, Evan, if she's so great, why don't you date her? And I was like, oh. I said, hey, man, is it cool if uh, you forget everything I said? And I go, <laughs> actually, ask her out. 
So I, when I decided to do it, actually at that point in my heart, in my mind, I decided like Amanda and I can never be friends again. Right, ladies, that's why when you break up with a guy, they're like, can we just be friends? They're like, I don't think we can go back to that. I've already moved past this. So I asked her to prom, and then, which at, at Christian school we called banquet. And then we, <laughs> then we, that's a whole other topic for another day. And then uh, eventually I asked her to be my girlfriend. Over the years, that instant infatuation became this kind of deep, consistent, growing love for her. And even though we've been through some tough times, her beauty inside and out grows more and more within me. And it's similar to like what your spouse or, or somebody you love, but greater for the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does in your heart is greater than that. He grows the love of Jesus inside of you. What does that look like? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, the more the Holy Spirit grows the beauty of Christ in your hearts, the more we move beyond instant infatuation towards a growing obedience out of our growing love for the one who loved us first. So in Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable, this story about a farmer sowing seeds. And he says there's this farmer, he's tossing his seeds, and, you know, he's kind of doing it indiscriminately, and some fall on the path, and, you know, birds eat that up. And he says and some fall on the ground, but because the soil is not very deep, the plants spring up real quickly, but then they die. And he says some fell on the thorns, and the thorns choked out the seeds, and other seed fell on the good soil and produced this major crop. And the disciples are kind of confused again, right? They're with Jesus, and they still don't know what's going on. They go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, could you explain this to us? And Jesus says, when people hear my teaching, some will never be infatuated with me at all. Some will never be attracted to me at all. Some will be swayed to other loves, see other things as more beautiful than me, be attracted to other things over me. And some will be instantly infatuated, but I will never take root in their hearts. And some will move beyond the instant infatuation stage and fall deeply in love with me and respond to the word of God in obedience. See, what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit moves us beyond instant infatuation of Jesus and makes Christ so beautiful to us that we turn around and seek to glorify him with our lives by obeying him. So the reason we need the Holy Spirit is because oftentimes Christ is not beautiful to us. So many other things are beautiful to us. Our self-deception is beautiful to us. Our spiritual blindness is beautiful to us. But the Holy Spirit makes Christ so beautiful that we turn around and we praise him in word and deed. In other words, because of our tendency towards self-deception, we need the Holy Spirit to move our hearts toward praising Jesus with our words and in our lives. So in our words, Acts chapter 2 says, the disciples are overheard by all in Jerusalem. All these different languages are represented by all the people there for the Pentecost festival. And what do they say? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. When the Holy Spirit is working in our lives, 
we praise Jesus before others, and that becomes more and more automatic. It becomes more and more authentic. It becomes more and more natural. It becomes more and more a deep desire that we have within us. And if it's not, if, if we're not like moved, if we say we have the Holy Spirit, we're not moved to praise Jesus. If, we're, if we struggle to praise Jesus, if we struggle to sing out at church or to shout out the responses and things like the insurance of pardon, or we don't feel like coming to church, or we struggle to tell others the mighty works of God by sharing our faith with them, we need to bring that before the Lord to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to our spiritual blindness, to open our eyes to the traces of self-deception that may reside in us from our old nature. If you and I do not feel like praising Jesus, sometimes you're not going to feel like it, but your heart still moves you that direction. You struggle To stay awake, you struggle to obey. You struggle to bring praise with your words and in your lives. That's the time when you're not feeling it. When it becomes a real challenge to you, that's also the time to say, Holy Spirit, awaken me. Awaken my heart to praise Jesus. Because when we think about everything Jesus has done for us, that he came, lived, and died and rose again and will come again one day, that shouldn't make us fall asleep. But it does sometimes if we're honest. We need the Holy Spirit to lay, like knock off the cobwebs, knock on the door and say, hey, time to wake up. And so also in our lives, not just our words and our lives, we talked about obedience already, like the Spirit hovering over the waters of creation and hovering over Mary's womb at the incarnation, the Holy Spirit hovers over the hearts of all who believe in Christ. So Basel, he's this great Christian pastor from the fourth century. He says this, the Spirit is like a sunbeam whose grace is present to the one who enjoys it as if it were present to that one alone. Yet it illuminates land and sea and is mixed with the air. What's, what's he saying? He's saying the Holy Spirit is universal. The Holy Spirit reveals the world's spiritual blindness, just like the sun hits everything. It covers the earth, but it's also personal. It makes Christ beautiful in our hearts, like when you sit on the beach, right, and you're just soaking up the rays. The whole world experiences the Holy Spirit, but only certain people go, I'm just going to soak up the rays right now. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to soak up the Spirit. I'm going to love Jesus more and more because of what the Holy Spirit's doing inside of me. Appreciating the universal work of the Holy Spirit by repenting of our blindness and believing in Jesus. Some of us need to do that for the first time. Some of us may need to do that again. And we need to experience the personal work of the Holy Spirit becoming more and making Christ more and more beautiful to us by living lives of praise, lives of, of obedience to him. So when you see the Holy Spirit working in your life, when you see Christ becoming more and more beautiful in your heart, what does that look like? 
Well, there's a few things it could look like. One, when we read the Bible or hear the gospel preach, we start trusting the gospel and the Bible more. We stop going, we stop making excuses, and we go, if that's what God says, it goes from, I'll try it out, to I'll do it. It stops seeing the gospel as good ideas or good advice, but as good news. It's something I need to have, not something I, need, I choose to have. And we start to trust it and we start to grow in holiness and obedience to what the Bible asks us to do. Or when we pray, when the Holy Spirit's making Jesus more and more beautiful in your heart, your prayer becomes less like an obligation before you eat something. Like, Jesus, thank you for this food, amen. Which you should do, it's a good, a good thing to do. Or it becomes like, you know, sometimes I like the prayer for me, like, is like, it's just what I tack on. Like, I read my Bible in the morning, I just tack on, like, hey, God, be with me today. That'd be great. And the Holy Spirit's doing stuff in me. My conversations, where He's doing something in you, your conversations become less about, like, your prayer would, prayers become less about tacking it on to something and more about this need to talk to someone who loves you and died for you who loves you so deeply, he would do that. It looks like when you come to worship on Sundays, it becomes less about what you get out of it. Too many Christians are coming as Americans where it's all about what I get out of this service, what I can consume. And what worship becomes, and the Holy Spirit's making Christ more and more beautiful in my heart, it becomes about me coming here and seeing what the Holy Spirit's doing in me and the people worshiping around me and celebrating that. Or maybe let me hit one a little bit just closer to home. When we surf, when you get those planning center emails, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and making Christ more and more beautiful to you. When you get the planning center emails, your heart doesn't drop into your stomach. You don't roll your eyes And you stop seeing service as a distraction to praise, but you see it as a heartfelt response to the one who first served you. See, the true gift of the Holy Spirit isn't just emotions, although sometimes that comes. It's not always supernatural gifts, although when the Spirit's moving, we should see things like that happening. It's not, all, all, it's not just about like Him illuminating Scripture, but it, the true gift, of the, which is He does, and, he, and it's a wonderful thing that He does, but the true gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is to glorify Christ in our hearts that makes Christ more and more attractive to us, more and more brilliant to us, more and more beautiful beautiful to us and where our love is for him is growing and growing and growing and anything that doesn't match with that is getting less and less and less evident in our lives lives marked by obedience of obedience and praise to the one who we love because he first loved us